It can happen. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for the glory of this morning to see your church doing more than it's done before. I pray, Lord, may it matter to us. And I'm asking, Lord, that we'll change our priorities and our focus in such a way that our words and actions will line up together with the knowledge that we're living near the approach and the return of Jesus. Bless this message now, Lord. Prepare the hearts that will hear it. Prepare the heart that will preach it. And I do pray, make it a divine worship hour, I ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, this morning I want to talk with you about something very important. On Friday, October 11, the United States uh, Attorney General, the highest law enforcement officer, lawyer for our country, made a speech at Notre Dame. It was just 25 miles from here. That speech has elicited all kinds of fervor and furor. And this morning I've entitled my message, the United States Attorney General, Democracy, Prophecy, and the future of religious liberty. Now I'm gonna tell you what I'm gonna do and then I'm gonna do it so you don't get confused because I'm gonna share a lot of history today. I'm gonna show you how Revelation 13, it talks about two beasts. It's a beast that comes up out of the sea and persecutes God's people for 1260 years. That beast is unequivocally, not by Seventh-day Adventist invention or definition, but by Protestant exposition of the Word of God and by myriad dozens and hundreds and thousands of preachers, pastors, and scholars through the last 500 years, that beast without animus and without any negative intent to anyone that's a member of this church represents a little horn power from Daniel chapter 7, which is the papacy. Now, I didn't make it up. It's not new with me. I don't want to offend you. My family has Catholic ties, very distinct Catholic ties. My father was raised as a Roman Catholic, loosely. I have the most wonderful people I know. I have a wonderful aunt, practicing Catholic lady. This has nothing to do with people, but it has something to do with prophecy, intent, and history. Now, the other beast in Revelation 13 is a lamb-like beast that appears on the scene while the first beast is being wounded. The beast that was an oppressive beast that dictated conscience, that ruled through civic power and allowed for no religious liberty, that beast, the papacy, was wounded about 200 years into the Protestant Reformation when Napoleon took the Pope and imprisoned two of them. Some wondered about the future of the Catholic Church. At that very same time, in the end of the 18th century, the 1700s, there's a new country arriving on the scene. It is America. And America will be uniquely different. It will make allowance for religious liberty like no nation ever on the face of the earth has done. There were republics before and there were democracies, but there were not republics and democracies like America that wove into the fabric of their constitutional law protection for religious freedom. This makes America unique in the history of the world. Now what I'm going to show you is that from the time of the deadly wound in 1798, I'm going to show you the trajectory of papal history and its attempt to reconstitute its authority and its power. I'm going to show you how America becomes great while the papacy is losing power and how America starts becoming immoral and godless and indulgent while the papacy is regaining power. I'm going to show you all this this morning with a purpose. I want you to understand something. 
When they take that doomsday clock and they move it closer to midnight, back and forth, that has to do with all things non-religious. But I'm here this morning to tell you the clock is ticking down. I know America's been good to most of us, and I know we really love our ease and our comfort. But I'm telling you today, we are to start planning for our heavenly inheritance. God is coming back. What he said would come true is coming true. The word of the prophets is more sure than even what we've read already that's happened. God has it planned out and it's happening. So what I'm really saying to you is parents, you can't be too busy to memorize those Sabbath school verses. You can't be too busy to do your Sabbath school lesson. By the way, take a cue from the spirit of prophecy. This is what Ellen White suggested to do with your families. Study the entire Sabbath school lesson on Sabbath afternoon together. And then you can talk about it through the week. And by the time your kids show up at Sabbath school, man, they'll have something to say because they'll have found out that their parents and the Bible are the most exciting dialogues that can be had and the Spirit gets in the midst and it's very, very wonderful. It's time for us to start memorizing. Psalm 46, Psalm 91. They're both Psalms that we've been directed to memorize in anticipation of the trouble that's coming. And if you weren't here for my presentation last Saturday night on the seven last plagues in the Battle of Armageddon, get online and watch it. You need to understand when Daniel sees in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, that Michael stands up when a time of trouble is coming on the earth, you need to know what it is, and you need to know how it's going to turn out. But I'm going to tell you the short version right now so nobody goes away worried. The real trouble are for those who don't have Michael standing up for them. I want you to understand this. The devil's tried to do a little end run on Seventh-day Adventists and make them afraid of what's coming. The people that need to be afraid are the ones that don't know they need to be afraid and need to be told there's a haven, a haven, there's a sanctuary, there's an ark for them to come into. It's a relationship with God. He knows his own and he takes care of his own. All right, let's go. All right, pendulum swing. Some of you have clocks in your houses that are still not completely electronic. When the pendulum goes like this, and at night when nobody's around, you can hear it ticking and you can hear it talking. I'm going to be talking to you this morning about pendulum swing. The papacy overexerted its influence and actually created a backlash in the form of the Reformation. Nobody wanted to break away from the mother church, but its oppression, its absolutely overarching oppression created it, and you got a backlash. Now we see that the papacy looks like it's about to fall. And when the papacy attempts to come back, the pendulum swings way over. I'm going to show you this in this sermon. And finally, I'm going to show you liberty. This American country was birthed on the idea of freedom and rule of the people. It pushed the pendulum way over here. But all of their license and all their liberty has led to licentiousness and debauchery and self-indulgence. And so we're imploding on a moral social level. And the pendulum's swinging way over here now. But what I'm here to tell you, there's one more pendulum swing that's coming. And that pendulum swing will be when we consider the weightiness of societal ills too great for all the freedoms we've been announcing and proclaiming. What's a democracy? It's a system of government by the whole population of eligible members. Now, we don't have a pure democracy in the sense that every time there's a decision to be made, all 300 million of us don't get together and vote. We have a Republican form of democracy where we elect people that represent us. And there's a little bit of a disconnect between the raw vote of the people and the actual enactment of law. It's done by people who have usually a higher level of education and uh, social status. Most Americans, including 
Many of us would be surprised to learn the word democracy is not in the Declaration or the Constitution. Does that mean it doesn't exist? No, it's just not there. Constitutional Republic is a form of indirect democracy where representatives are elected and the rules are set down in a written constitution. It's awfully simply called a republic. John Adams said that a constitutional republic was a government of what? Laws and not people. That's very important because in the end of the day, law and obedience and respect of law is what keeps our society safe. Now, we all know that some 400 years ago, there was an effort to achieve at great personal sacrifice liberty. And so these pilgrims, many of who died on the way and many more who have died when they got here, risked life, limb, fortune, and future. And yet they were hoping for a better future and they established this country. They believe that whenever the state seeks to enforce religious beliefs on its citizens, persecution results. That's why they're on the beach there at the Massachusetts Bay. In our Constitution, it says no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof shall be made. The Bible tells us of this lamb-like beast. Remember, I described two beasts in the book of Revelation chapter 13. I have not created the identity of the first. Now, the identity of the second is the United States of America is not, all, is not only shared by myself and those of my religious faith either. But the interpretation that I'm going to show you here today is probably somewhat unique to my Seventh-day Adventist faith. I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and he spoke like a dragon. There's a dual nature to the beast. For the last 200 and some years, we've experienced primarily lamb-like dynamics, but there is a dragon dynamic on the way. Where does this beast power arise from? coming up out of the earth. We know that in Bible prophecy, according to Revelation 17, the sea represents peoples and populated places. This beast came up out of the earth. Indeed, after the Protestant Reformation is well underway for a few hundred years, and while the papacy is experiencing this deadly wound, society is fed up with her overreach of power, we see across the pond on the other side of the Atlantic, the United States of America emerging in a relatively sparsely populated place. This new beast comes up out of the earth, an unpopulated area. When does this beast power rise? Towards the end of the domination of the Papal See. For 1260 years, sometimes called the Middle Ages, sometimes called the Dark Ages, dark because of the kind of oppression and ignorance and overreach of the church, we come to the end of that period in which there is redress, pendulum swing to these problems. Berthier, the French general sent by Napoleon, took the Pope of Rome captive. As a matter of fact, both Pope Pius VI and Pius VII were held by Napoleon. How does this power arise? It comes up out of the earth and it has two horns like a lamb. There are no crowns on these horns. It represents a balance of power without a monarchy. The mystery of her coming forth, said a secular historian, from vacancy, like a silent seed, we grew into an empire. Echoing the sentiments of the Bible symbology, emerging amid the silence of the earth, adding daily to its power and strength. Indeed, the United States has had an ascendance of power and might. We think about the great freedoms we enjoy and we stand thankful and blessed. The nation speaks, as I noted before, through law. That was in a previous slide. But what the Bible declares is that eventually what was once separate in America will unite. 
there will be a combination of church and state. Today, I'm going to show you why. Instability, injustice, and confusion, wrote James Madison in the Federalist Papers, have, been, have in truth been the mortal disease under which popular governments everywhere have perished. Now, pause. Do any of you listen to the news? If you don't, you should a little bit. If instability, injustice, and confusion are not abounding right now on the more American political scene, I want to know what it would need to look like. You want a certain line of news, you go over here. You want a certain line of news, you come over here. Somebody, probably everybody, has a problem going on, and the problem is they're determined to see through their lens no matter what the truth. Don't confuse me with the facts. If there was ever a confused moment on the landscape of American political life, you are living in it. And I want you to understand that according to Madison in his Federalist Papers, this is how popular governments everywhere have perished. It's time to wake up, friends. These are not ordinary days. We're not just probably, I'm not saying we couldn't. We could see all kinds of strange things happen and we might go through another period of relative calm. But I don't think so because the fabric of American society itself is what is bent. You look at the polls, should we impeach the president? Should we not? They line up almost completely in a 50-50 split based pretty much on what you've already decided in regards to your political predilection. It's not a very good day. Truth doesn't reign anymore. The fact of the matter is, is that truth is your truth. The postmodern mentality has made it into politics and it's painful, painful. In response, now, I wanna, I'm going to shift gears now, and I'm going to tell you why we're close to that church-state union. John Cornwell got permission to go into the pontifical archives and write a book about Pius XII, Eugenio Pacelli. Why did he get permission? Because he had heard that this pope was somehow complicit in the slaughter of the Jews through an agreement with the, with the German government leaders. He went into the journey planning to exonerate the papacy. That's how he got access to the archives. He came out of the journey with the book entitled Hitler's Pope. You can see that there is a not so subtle intimation of guilt in the title of the book. Now I'm going to show you something very important. I'm going to trace for you the history of the deadly wound and its effect for the last 200 years. I'm going to do it quickly and there's going to be a lot of Pope names. I know you don't deal in this very often, so I'm going to try to be clear. You may have to go back and watch this sermon more than once. I hope not, but I'm going to show you now what happened to the Catholic Church after Napoleon imprisoned Pope Pius VI and VII. Now, this is going to be talking about a pope who was pope from about 1938 or 39 to 1958, I think. Eugenio Pacelli, Pope Pius XII. He says, in response to the political and social changes that gathered pace in the aftermath of the French Revolution, all right, we're at the end of the 18th century, the late 1700s, the papacy had struggled to survive and exert an influence in a climate of liberalism, secularism, science, industrialization, and the evolving nation state. In other words, there was a crisis in the papal governance system because it wasn't prepared for the ideas of the Enlightenment. Secularism, you don't have to believe in God. 
Liberalism, a state about personal rights. Science, no longer dictated from Rome. Industrialization, wealth to the masses. The church wasn't ready for this. The Catholic Church, quoting from his book, became an object of oppression in Europe throughout much of the 19th century. You know, that's the 1800s. So the church was in trouble. It had fallen out of favor by, by way of the masses and political structures. Its property and wealth systematically was plundered. Religious order and clergy were deprived of their scope of action. Schools were taken over by the state or shut down. This was the experience of the Roman Catholic Church throughout the 1800s. The popes have been obliged to fight on two fronts. They were primates or leaders of an embattled church, the Roman Catholic Church, and as monarchs of a tottering papal kingdom. The Vatican, the Holy Roman See, is an actual nation state. And the truth of the matter is, many of their properties were confiscated by Italy. And so there was a question as to whether or not the Roman Catholic Church would even survive. That's why it looked like a deadly wound. Caught in bewildering series of confrontations with the new masters of Europe, the papacy had been attempting to protect the church universal while defending the integrity of its collapsing, and what are the next two words? Temporal power. Now the Seventh-day Adventist church has no temporal power. Neither do the Baptists or the Presbyterians. But the Catholic church has always sought to combine church and state. And I'm gonna show you in this sermon how they not only recaptured it, I'm going to show you how they currently have it and why it should alarm you. The papacy itself was repeatedly humiliated. Two popes were held prisoner by Napoleon and papal territories had been constant danger of dismemberment and annexation as the forces for modernization gained strength. The papal autocracy, which means absolute power, undoubtedly had been a principal cause of the Reformation. What's Cornwell saying? He's saying that this absolute power and this overreach running over people's conscience and personal rights created a backlash. I want you to think pendulum swing. If you go out of this church today without thinking pendulum swing, I have failed. Now, now let's go back one. The first Vatican Council, Vatican I, was held over a period of years. The main thing that came out of this Vatican Council was the infallibility of the Pope. Now that did not exist before the Pope was taken captive in 1798. Now I want you to think pendulum swing. The Roman Catholic Church for the first 1500 years was actually built around more than just the authority of the Pope. It was built on other components of the church. But now that there's been a deadly wound, when it starts coming back, it's going to reach for more than it's ever had before. Now, Pope Pius IX was the one who oversaw this. Take your bulletins out. I want you to look at the quote in the bulletin. This quote comes out of great controversy. He hated modernity. He was not a modernist. He did not like the Enlightenment ideas. He was bitter about what it had done to his church. Now, this quote comes out of the great controversy. I want, it, I want to ensure anybody that's watching or listening to me, get the book and read it. Know what's in it. If you've never read the book, you are walking blind into the future. The Constitution of the United States guarantees liberty of conscience. Nothing is dear or more fundamental. This is Ellen White writing. Pope Pius IX, that's who's on the screen. Overseer of Vatican I, infallibility of the papacy. 
in his encyclical letter of August 15, 1854 said, now notice the sarcasm and the, the contempt, the absurd and erroneous doctrines or ravings in defense of liberty of conscience are a most pestilential error, a pest of all others, most to be dreaded in a state. Let that sink in. This is the Pope who establishes papal infallibility when he teaches ex cathedra. The same Pope in the encyclical letter of December 8, 1864 anathematized, in other words, he put at the peak of hated things, those who assert the liberty of conscience and of religious worship, and also all such as maintain that the church may not employ force. Listen, friends, this isn't that long ago. And it is doctrine that has not been repudiated by the Catholic Church. Out of this comes papal infallibility. Think pendulum swing. The decree states that the true successor of St. Peter, this is now on papal infallibility, has full and supreme power of jurisdiction over the whole church. That he has the right of free communication with the pastors of the whole church and with their flocks. One of the things that you see starting to develop is the privilege of the Pope to appoint anybody he wants on the cardinal level or the bishop level. And that his primacy includes the supreme teaching power to which Jesus Christ added the prerogatives of papal infallibility, whereby the Pope is preserved free from error when he teaches definitively that a doctrine concerning faith or morals is to believe by the whole church. Vatican I, about 130, 140 years ago. But this Pope was not very much appreciated. And when his funeral procession was leaving San Lorenzo to go to St. Peter's, several of you have been to Rome, and they were crossing the Tiber River, a, a gang got a hold of the entourage and was threatening to throw his, his uh, casket in the Tiber River. If the military witness showed up, he never would have made it to his final resting place. I want you to see, this is in the 1860s, I want you to see how absolutely unappreciated and how much contempt was held still for the Roman Catholic Church. This is in Rome, and this is the middle 1800s, but I want to show you how it's changing. Now, this Pope here, Pius XII, is the focus of Cornwell's book, Hitler's Pope, Eugenio Pacelli. I don't want to confuse you as I go forward. He worked his way up through the ranks of the papacy and found himself as uh, a key lawyer redrafting the canon law of 1917. This law is still in effect, slight little adaptations to it, and I believe in 1983, but this law is still in effect. And this law is the governance structure for the Roman Catholic Church, okay? It's like our constitution and bylaws or our policy books. This here is how the church works. He was part of the redrafting of it, and what he did was he brought he coalesced the power of governance closer and closer to the Pope himself so that this infallibility of Vatican I and now this canon law is giving the Pope more and more power. He was a nuncio, that means an ambassador to Munich and Berlin in the 1930s, and he negotiated something. Now, before I go into that negotiation, let's comment on the code. The code, distributed to Catholic clergy throughout the world, created the means of establishing, imposing, and sustaining a remarkable new top-down power relationship. That's what the code of 1917 did. That code is still operative. The Pope, after the deadly wound, has much more authority and power than he ever did before.
1933, Pacelli found a successful negotiating partner for his Reich Concordat in the person of Adolf Hitler. Now, this is where things are kind of dark. At this moment in time, we find that Pacelli is now negotiating. This is a picture in Rome. This is Pacelli right here. He will go on to become, he is not the Pope yet, he will go on to become Pope Pius XII. What makes this so significant is that what Pacelli was after was civil power to enforce the edicts of his code on the German prelates, on, on the German members of the Catholic Church and the priests and the bishop. He wanted civic power. And so he goes to negotiating with the developing Nazi uh, political establishment, and along the way he strikes a deal that will forever taint his name. This treaty authorized the papacy to impose the new church law on German Catholics and granted privileges to Catholic schools and clergy. Now, most of you don't know this. Some of you are from Germany. I've had the privilege of going several times, and I can still remember riding in a train when one of the Germans was explaining to me how their tithe, if you want to call it that, their contribution to the state church was automatically deducted like taxes from their pay. We don't do that in America. But what I want you to understand is that this was an agreement in which special favor from the government and special power would come for the enacting and the benefit of the Roman Catholic Church. In exchange, the Catholic Church in Germany, its parliamentary political party, so all of its political activism, and its many hundreds of associations and newspapers would voluntarily, look at the quote marks, the direction would come from Rome. You are no longer to oppose the political actions of the Nazi party. And you can see the setup. As Hitler himself boasted in a cabinet meeting on July 14, 1933, Pacelli's guarantee he would become Pope Pius XII of non-intervention left the regime free to resolve what? The Jewish question. And thus a church, which is supposed to be a part of a collective conscience of speaking to its leaders, steps out of the way so its leaders can do as they wish. And thus the Catholic Church, especially Pope Pius XII, Eugenio Pacelli, bears the blot of complicitness in the destruction of so many millions of Jews. One of the German chancellors in 1930 wrote, all successes, Pacelli believed, could only be admitted by papal diplomacy. The system of concordats or agreements led him and the Vatican to despise what? Democracy and the parliamentary system. This is in the 1940s and 50s. A little bit more. Rigid governments. Feel it, folks. Rigid centralization and rigid treaties were supposed to introduce an era of stable order, of era of quiet and of peace. His vision of the papacy was unchallenged power, mystically bestowed by God. This is coming from Cornell's book, Hitler's Pope, in what he deemed the interest of the survival and unity of the Catholic Church. Friends, what if I replaced Instead of in the interest of the survival and unity of the Catholic Church, I replaced the survival of civility and civilization. Decency and order, law and order. What if I change those things? 
Could we come to the place where rigid structures of government were once again not only needed but wanted? The most absolutist pope in modern history, and that, my friends, is only 60, 70 years ago. Now, let's move on. Vatican II. Pacelli has died. There is, let's think, pendulum swing. Everybody that was around him that didn't like what he was doing wanted to see the pendulum swing the other way. If we had absolute power in the papacy, we wanted to see it swing back over here to where it was a little bit more dispersed. And so Vatican II is overseen as a, uh, by Pope Pius XXIII, or Pope John XXIII, and it's seen to redefine the church. It's no longer the institution and power structures. It's now supposed to be the people of God. The second thing that comes out of it, most of you are aware of, is the mass is no longer in Latin. So the Catholic worship service is no longer done in Latin. It's done in the language of the people. And the third thing is there's a call for collegiality. This is what I want to focus on. Instead of one person having all the power, it's to be shared. Now I want you to notice there's a call for collegiality. This is not a law redefining the structures of governance in the church. So it's going to be up to the good-naturedness and the, operating, the operatives of the church to respond out of some kind of potential more obligation. John Twenty-Third did not live through the entire duration of the meetings. They lasted over a period of a few years. And the popes that followed John Twenty-Third, according to Cornell, were unwilling to let go. It's kind of hard to let go of power once you have it. There was a moral obligation on popes to apply collegiality, but no institutional mechanism. Why does this matter? Well, I'm about to show you. He was followed by Paul VI from 1963 to 1978. Now we're getting into memorable times. Then one of the shortest popes ever to reign, 33 days from August to September in 1978. And now we're going to come up to time that most of you will remember. Because now we have the first non-Italian pope in more than 400 years, Pope John Paul II. And we think of him with his beneficent smile, his magnetism and charisma. We think of him as one who truly reshapes and reestablishes the primacy of the papacy. And indeed he does. But the question at hand for us today is, does he embrace collegiality or does he continue to solidify the structures of absolute authority out of the papal seat? There are deep contradictions, Corn Cornwell will write, in Wariola's papacy taken in the round. That means in the whole. Advocate and enabler of social and political activism in Poland in the 70s and in the 80s, he emerged as a traditionalist autocrat, as despotic in his management of the church as Pacelli ever was. Now, mind you, this is written by a person who wanted to exonerate Pacelli and probably would like to exonerate John Paul. But his assessment as a historian and a Catholic, I believe, is that John Paul behind the scenes is no different than Pacelli, no different than Pope Pius XII. John Paul has canonized more saints during his pontificate than all the other popes put together since the formal process was established. You say, Pastor, what does that matter? I'm going to tell you what it matters. Who did he want to canonize? Making Pius XII a saint would be a decisive victory for the traditionalist over the progressives in the interpretation of Vatican II. Vatican II was about collegiality. 
If it's all about collegiality, and if Hitler's Pope went way too far in becoming an absolutist, maybe we ought not to be putting him forth as one for beatification or sainthood. No. He is going to be moved along the road by John Paul himself for the sainthood. Hitler's Pope was made a servant of God by Pope John Paul II in 1990. That's a step. And Pope Benedict declared Pius XII, Hitler's Pope, venerable as a saint on December 19, 2009. One other thing you'll want to know before I'm done is that John Paul II beatified Opus Dei. He's the founder, uh, the founder of Opus Dei, who is, which is a questionable uh, religious society of the Catholics, and it will come up as we go to the speech. Benedict the uh, 16th was the protector of religious dogma, hardly a progressive, you would say, and that brings us up to Francis. Now, Francis, we know, is reasserting his political ability. He's very astute at connecting with people. And I have no desire to run him down personally. I am acknowledging that he is rising out of the tide of dysfunction as a potentially functional, credible, honest, responsible leader. And we all know about his endorsement of the Global Educational Alliance. In a video message, it says here, Pope Francis launches a global event that will take place at the Vatican on May 14. Now, friends, I didn't dig for this. It's right off the Vatican News website, okay? I'm not a conspiratist. I haven't had to dig for anything I'm showing you here today. All I've done is reacquaint myself or acquaint myself with Cornell's book, Hitler's Pope, and the things I'm going to show you on William Barr's speech and all the responses came almost all off the first page if you just want to Google it. There's nothing secretive here. The Pope announced a few weeks ago the Educational Alliance meeting will see the attendance of representatives from various regions, non-governmental organizations, academia, and cultural and political leaders at the invitation of Pope Francis. That's May 14 of 2020. Now, let's go to the speech for just a second. I'm going to read you just a little bit of the speech. I'm here to tell you there's almost nothing in the speech. Get online and look at it. Nine pages, just Google it. Get online and look at it. I assure you, there's almost nothing in the speech that you will disagree with. So I'm going to read you just a little bit of it. Some of this I may bring up on the screen as well. But quoting Madison, Barr said, we've staked our future on the ability of each of us to govern ourselves. He's going to make a point that a independent society without a monarch will have to be governed individually so that there can be collective self-control you can't have a democracy without having some kind of governing influence in the heart of the citizens of the country. As John Adams put it, we have no government armed with the power which is capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate for any government of any other type. I'm going to skip about, three, uh, about a third of the way in. He gets to talking about uh, social pathology. What does he mean by that? What are our social diseases? He says virtually every measure of social pathology continues to gain ground. In 1965, the illegitimacy rate was 8%. That's ladies having babies without being married to their daddies. 8% in 1965. In 1992, when I was last Attorney General, because he was Attorney General also, I believe, under President Bush, it was 25%. Today, in 2019, it is 40%. In 
And in many of our large urban areas, it's around 70%. Along with the wreckage of the family, we're seeing record levels of depression and mental illness, dispirited young people, soaring suicide rates, increasing number of angry and alienated young males, an increase in senseless violence, and a deadly drug epidemic. Epidemic. As you know, over 70,000 people die a year from drug overdoses. That is more casualties in a year than we experienced during the entire Vietnam War. I will not dwell on all the bitter results of the new secular age. Suffice it to say, now this is where it gets very controversial, that the campaign to destroy the traditional moral order has brought with it immense suffering, wreckage, and misery. Just a little bit more. In the past, he says, societies threatened by moral chaos and the over -social cost, overall social cost of licentiousness ultimately recoil and reevaluate the path they are on. But today, in the face of increasing pathologies, social ills, instead of addressing the underlying cause, we have the state in the role of the alleviator of bad consequences. The solution for the breakdown of the family is for the state to set itself up as the substitute dad or the substitute mother. The call comes from more and more social programs to deal with the wreckage. Then he says the refusal to accommodate the free exercise of religion is a relatively new or recent event. Just 25 years ago, there was broad consensus in our society that our laws should accommodate religious belief. Let's go a little bit into the reaction now. He quoted Edwin Burke, men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put chains on their appetites. Society cannot exist unless the controlling power be placed somewhere. And the less of it there is within, the more of it there must be without. What's he saying? When there is no Holy Spirit controlling, he didn't use the words Holy Spirit, but when you don't have the Holy Spirit telling you no, you need a law telling you no. And the less the controlling of the Spirit of God is in a person, the more you're going to need laws in a land to tell you what to do. It's ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. The Guardian picked it up. A threat to democracy. William Barr's speech on religious freedom alarms liberal Catholics. The Attorney General is taking positions that are essentially undemocratic because they demolish the wall between church and state. Anderson is a Roman Catholic professor at Fordham University. So he is a liberal Catholic critiquing William Barr, who is a very devout conservative Catholic and the lead lawyer for our United States of America. Barr's speech at Notre Dame was a reminder of a fact often overlooked in the analysis of Trump's political base. Though while the president enjoys the support of many high-profile right-wing Christian evangelical leaders, he has also surrounded himself with conservative Roman Catholics associated with organizations that some others in the faith consider extreme. Now, we're going to come back to Opus Dei and the beatification, the sainthood by John Paul II for the founder of Opus Dei. One example, Barr and Patrick Cipollone, Trump's White House counsel, have both served on the board of directors of a Washington-based organization staffed by priests from the secretive ultra-Orthodox Catholic sect, Opus Dei. This commentator says this should put the fear of God into anybody who cares about freedom, democracy, and the separation of religion and politics, said John O'Brien, president of Catholics for Choice. 
a group that advocates for Catholics who support a woman's right to abortion and other reproductive freedoms. By the way, friends, this is not really part of this sermon, but I'm going to throw it in. If you haven't been paying attention to the news, you know there is state after state that is lining up so that Roe v. Wade can be put back on the dock of the United States Supreme Court. I'm making a case. Here's the case I'm making. There is a pendulum swing coming. There is a religious response coming. There is a return to a call, an actual pleading for somebody to institute some kind of new moral order. order back into this country. Barr's speech, he said, shows that Christmas is coming very early for conservative Catholics and other Christians who want to see an end to abortion rights. But in his Senate confirmation hearings in January, Barr was asked a few questions about his faith and how it might bear on the actions of the Justice Department. Barr was not questioned in any detail, for example, about his membership on the board of directors of the Catholic Information Center in Washington, the Opus Dei-linked group, that offers as a meeting place for prominent Catholics in the Capitol. The center's board has also included Leonardo Leo of the Federalist Society, the right-wing legal group tasked by Trump to help pick up federal judges, including members of the Supreme Court. Leo led campaigns in support of the Supreme Court nomination of Roberts, Alito, and Kavanaugh, all of them Catholics who now serve on the court. All right, how about Mother Jones? So-called progressives, ought to be concerned because he's about to wreak havoc on American society. Again, first page on a Google hit, do it. Barr's depiction of a war between the non-religious and the people of faith shocked legal experts who saw Barr's defense of religious freedom as an assault on the First Amendment's protection against the government's establishment of any religion. All right, this is from the Washington Post. On Friday, in a closed-door speech at the University of Notre Dame, Attorney General William P. Barr talked at length about a campaign to destroy the traditional moral order. Now, she's accurate this far. He does talk about it. He says it's no longer just a regular implosion, but he says everybody with a microphone, my paraphrase, everybody with a microphone is lining up to destroy traditional Judaic Christian values. He does say that in his speech. So she's right thus far, but I want you to see where she goes. The alleged perpetrator of this campaign, militant secularist who insists upon keeping government institutions free from the influence of any faith or creed. Pretty soon, most people are gonna say some religion in the laws of the land would be good. It's a lot easier to put it in the law than it is to put it in your heart. It's a lot easier to dictate it through fiat and legal action than it is for a revival to come back to the churches of America. To be clear, this was not merely an affirmation delivered by a devout Catholic while visiting a Catholic university of how privately taught religious values can contribute to character development or stronger communities. No, this appeared to be a tacit endorsement of, what word would you put there? This is the one she put. She's a Princeton-educated columnist for the Washington Post. For some of you, that would be a liability. For others of you, no, it would probably mean left-leaning. Of course, the Washington Post is. But look at what she fills in the blank with. Theocracy. I want you to know what people are thinking, what people are saying. Here's one. Bill Barr's first epistle to the heathens. This is heathens. The Attorney General believes the Christian hegemony, which means dominance, is essential to American democracy and wants to leverage state power to uphold it. 
Paul Krugman warned that Barr is sounding remarkably like America's most unhinged religious zealots. The kind of people who insist that we keep experiencing mass murder because schools teach the theory of evolution. Guns don't kill people. Darwin kills people. The Attorney General believes the Christian dominance is essential to American democracy and wants to leverage state power to uphold it. The Attorney General is the nation's top law enforcement officer. What would you put in the blank? Not its top theologian. What I want you to see is that this individual, along with Mike Pompeo, who gave a similar speech, maybe on the exact same day somewhere else, touting Christian leadership, is causing all the people on the left side of American society to get worried because they think it's the undoing of democracy. This dynamic's not healthy for American politics, and those who found a moral and ethic foundation beyond Christianity, interesting phrase, I don't know where they found it at, aren't going anywhere. So Bill Barr, what's he doing? He's an outlier. He gets it. He's in a position of power. Am I suggesting that his speech was appropriate? No, I'm not here to endorse his speech. Many of the sentiments in the speech I think are true in regards to our societal ills and our social pathology. But I'll tell you what Bill Barr's doing. He's recognizing the pendulum is about to swing. And he's a leading voice And he's telling all of us, even though none of us were invited to this private gathering there on the campus of Notre Dame, he's telling all of us that he knows the pendulum is going to swing. And the more thought leaders that are brought into positions of power, who understand that something's got to be done, some rigid controls, some rigid structures, something to save this democracy, he's doing it. Now, how far is the pendulum going to swing? Now, listen, I want to put a graph up. In the 19th century, America had ascending power. This is the 1800s. It's also the time for the Millerite movement. It's the Second Great Awakening. You have to remember, at the early part of the 1800s, William Wilberforce was alive in England, pushing for the abolition of slavery. And Wesley was still alive. You had this great religious awakening. There was this tremendous sense, not only of American military might and political power, but there is also a moral ascendancy to the overall. This is very painting with very broad strokes, I know. But you see America, who de Tocqueville, the French philosopher and historian, was enamored with. And as much as the phrase has been debunked, it still remains, uh, it still remains salient. America is great because America is good. When America is no longer good, she will no longer be great. So I want you to see Americans' fortunes rising at the same time that the papal fortunes in the 1800s are sliding downwards. I want you to see the inverse relationship of the two. Now I'm going to take you to the next slide. Now I'm going to put you into the 20th century and the 21st century. I want you to see America with wealth. And I want you to see its decline of interest in spiritual things, even though its military interest is, and power has increased and its political power. But I want you to watch that a nation increased with wealth and goods starts to lose its interest. But I want you to see in the 19th century, as I've just taken you back over from Vatican I, infallibility of the Pope, to Eugenio Pacelli, Pope Pius XII, who codifies absolute power for the papacy, we spend a lot of time on, on, uh, on the agreement between Mussolini and the Pope about reestablishing the Vatican Sea, and we spend too much time on Reagan putting an ambassador to the papacy 
we need to step back and look at the big picture because behind the scenes, inside the Catholic Church itself, there is this, this coalescing, this bringing together of power inside the church base itself centered in the papacy. And in the 1900s, the papacy and the, and the church itself is strengthening in its image and its internal sense of structure and controls. On this side of the graph is the 20th century. Now, where the lines curve is where we are today. Because the morality of America used to be happy days and little house on the prairie, and now it's a fight over which bathroom you should be able to use because you've declared yourself to be a different gender. And what I want you to see is that while our American democracy is mired down along with England, I went over this in Jesus on Prophecy, while our democracy is mired down in the fact that nobody tells the truth and nobody wants the truth, while our morality is plunging into the tank, the Pope's respectability and the mechanism of the Catholic Church is taking a distinct upward climb into the stratospheres of respectability. I want you all to think about it. We are living on the cusp of a pendulum swing. Now, I don't have this book up here. I have multiple copies of it. It was written in the 80s. The struggle for world dominion between Pope John Paul II, he's gone, Mikhail Gorbachev, he's gone, and the capitalist West. Now, while Pope John Paul II's gone, the institution he represented did not embrace collegiality, but it continued to embrace the canon law of 1917 and the absolute authority of the Pope. And that power has continued to be codified and established. There's a reason. When the Pope lost his power back in the late 1700s and the papacy almost died, that's the deadly wound the Bible talks about, it didn't, it, it didn't really tell us, but we shouldn't be surprised that since nobody ever expected that somebody would actually imprison a pope and confiscate their lands, and people think about throwing a Roman pontiff's body in the Tiber River, we shouldn't be surprised that when the organization comes back, the pendulum swings the power of the organization beyond what it's ever been before. Now, it hasn't yet acquired all the civil power of the Dark Ages, so don't take me to say more than what I'm saying, but what I'm telling you is, is that when it gets that power back, there will be more centralized autonomy in the eyes of the little horn with a voice that speaks blasphemous things than there have ever been before. John Paul is gone, but the papacy is not. Mikhail Gorbachev's Soviet Union has collapsed. What about the capitalist West? Well, in 2008 and 2007, we came perilously close to at least the capitalist part of it tanking. You tell me what America has today if it doesn't have a juggernaut economy. You pull that economy out of the mix, and where goes everybody's hopes? Society's going to the toilet. Many people believe and I do believe this, by the way. I'm not going to ascribe to it any political bent, but there's no doubt the world is waxing old like a garment. The climate is showing signs of the age of the earth. What do you have left? The American dream gone? 
If you can't bank your bucks in the bank and you can't drive your nice car and have your multiple houses and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, what's left? I want to know what it would take to bring down the Capital West. And I wonder if the Federalist Papers are a little bit on track. If indeed you can look around and recognize that things have gone from bad to worse, even though the economy keeps chugging into the outer stratospheres, we might all come to the place where we say, something's really wrong here and we got to get back to God. Listen, friends, I could wish that everybody listening to me would make that decision. But it's not for the top lawyer of the United States of America to make for you. Nor is it for any pontiff or pastor. Yes, the pendulum is about to swing. And what I'm saying to you is, for God's sake, recognize the time in which you're living. It's not time to keep planning for a great and glorious future. It is time to start anticipating meeting Jesus. It's time for us to realize that the battle is going to break out again. And by the way, I'm not going to quote it out of the speech, but William Barr basically said, it's time for all those Catholic lawyers to take the field and make a difference for this society. My loose paraphrase. Oh yes, friends, it's time for a lot of people to take the field. And I'd like to suggest the best way you take the field is take this book and start hiding its words in your heart because its words are sharper than any two-edged sword and it cuts through the darkness. Give up on all the other things that are not of value. Quit wasting our time. More than that, quit feeding the appetite that puts our roots on planet Earth and makes us citizens of the devil's kingdom. It is time for us to recognize that our salvation is nearer than when we first believe. How does this picture make you feel? You want to be there? That's pretty soon society's going to feel just like that. That's what's happening. We're edging closer and closer. And eventually somebody's going to say, something's got to be done before we fall off the cliff. Instability, injustice, I'm coming back to Madison, and confusion have in truth been the mortal disease under which popular governments everywhere have perished. Friends, you listen to your news. And you ask yourself if instability, injustice, and confusion are not prevailing. There's something for us to do. Church and state will unite to enforce religious practices for the sake of society and democracy. So now here's what's the irony? What's the irony of this whole message? Yes, the democracy is imperiled. And yes, we need to get back to God. Bill Barr is right. A, a family that doesn't govern itself individually is not set up to govern itself collectively. And yes, all the critics of Bill Barr are right too. It means the end of democracy is on its way. But we've known that. It's just now, it was 25 miles away on a Friday afternoon. Friends, it's time to start thinking about your holdings, your bank accounts, your focuses. It's time to start thinking about how organized is this church to actually get the word out before the Sun goes down on the day of opportunity. We're to work for the night is coming. We're to work 
I'm inviting you at the end of this message to know there will be a false and a true revival. One will point us back to those who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus, and one will point to a false revival through a false prophet that does not enshrine the Bible as its highest authority, but instead embraces a doctrine of papal infallibility, which is built on tradition and the dogma of the Pope. Those revivals are in front of us. We have the choice to withdraw our affections from the world and say, Jesus, please give me a deeper love for you and your church. I'm inviting you not to be afraid, but I'm inviting you to not march forward blindly, enjoying the loaves and the fishes while failing to prepare to meet Jesus Christ who's called you and me to be fishers of men. Yes, Christ is inviting us. Come to me. Embrace a relationship with me. Obey me. The bridge is built, friends. Our faith is in Jesus. We have a more sure word of prophecy which we do well to heed as a light that shines in the darkness. Are you Seventh-day Adventist friends? Wait a second. <laughs> I said, are you Seventh-day Adventist? This has been preached for over a century and it is getting ready to happen. How about if we get ready for what's going to happen by drawing near to Christ? I'm inviting you this morning. Draw near to me, Jesus says, and I will draw near to you. Let go of what the Holy Spirit's been talking to you about. Come out to the religious meetings and bond with the other soldiers of Christ. Pray for each other. Get your check checkbooks out and your online giving. Let's go somewhere and do what we can do. And let us anticipate the fact that God gave us an inside story so that we could wake up and tell the rest of the world there is a shelter in the time of the storm. It's Jesus. Amen. But now is the time to decide. Amen. 